All right, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless. If at all possible, we'll find the obvious buried in the absurd. Hold on to your friggin' lug nuts. It's time for an overall. to have you back with me one more time right here on a Saturday morning. You know, I, I was uh, up this morning very early. I think I got up about 4 a.m. And in order to get ready to do this podcast, I have to uh, turn the heat on in the highly vaunted, highly respected, award-winning Aurora Media Production Studio in order to do this podcast. It takes about three hours to warm up. And I'll tell you why. Because when we bought the house, this um, addition on the back was built in 1956. The house was built in 1955. From the original owners, we were able to to secure this place. And when I walked into this uh, addition on the back, which I don't see on any other house in the block out here, I was just like, this is my studio. They built this for me even before I was born, just didn't know it. So it's a three season room, gorgeous wood in here. It's got bamboo, it's got tongue and groove on the ceiling. Uh, just very, very cool. A lot of windows and uh, all my knickknack stuff's in here, my football stuff, my horror movie stuff, my posters, my Coast Guard stuff, the 1958 Grundig, my parents' wedding gift to each other, sitting about four and a half, five feet away. And I'm very comfortable in here. And I need to be comfortable to do this work because I'm, I'm in here a lot. But it's a three-season room, which means summer, well, spring, summer, and fall. And when you get to winter, you can, I got to get locked in here. You know, I'm used to working in adverse weather as a proud veteran of the United States Coast Guard where we're going out when everybody else is coming in. I'm pretty used to working in uh, less than desirable conditions, let's put it that way, even though it was a very long time ago. But I digress. So it takes me a while to warm this up in here, depending on the day. It was in the teens overnight here in Chicago. So I can figure an hour and a half, two hours, maybe three, depending on how much coffee I've had to get in here. And just as a little trade secret, I've done this in other places I've gone. Uh, like when I was at WGN in 2013 and 14, I was asked to do an overnight week for Overnight America, which is out of KMOX, the mighty KMOX in St. Louis, Missouri. And I did it out of John Williams's office. Now, John Williams is a, is a daytime host here in Chicago. He's been on for years at WGN. And in his office at the time, now that's all different because we were at the Tribune Tower, which is now condos. But at the time, everybody had their cubicles and, and things like that. And John, of course, had an office. And in the corner of his office, there was like a closet. In the closet was a setup, pretty much what I have here, so I could do radio you know, out into the world from, from Chicago, as John would do. He actually did double duty for, I don't know, one or two years. He did Chicago from like noon to three and prior to that, from 9 to noon, he was talking in Minneapolis, which is, it's a long day. Look, we're not running jackhammers here or, you know, uh, curing world hunger on the radio. But it is takes a bit to get this stuff rolling. And John does it every day, Monday through Friday. So he's great at it. But I remember doing that. And there was a heating pad on the floor in the little closet in John's office. And I asked him, what's with the heating pad? He goes, you're going to need it. Because the way it was set up with the heating in the building, there was zero heat in this little room. So I would turn the heating pad on, put my feet on it like John did. I don't know if he still does that. I think he's got a better office wherever he's at now. But uh, yeah, so to this day, I still, when it's cold, on my little 
tootsies down there. There's a heating pad on the lowest level setting. Just kind of keeps me warm. So it's all good. Now that you've heard all the stuff you don't need to hear, we can start. <laughs> Point being is I'm getting up early in the morning, turn the heat on. I'm, I'm an early riser. I do most of my work early part of the day. By, by nine o'clock, I got five hours in. And that's how I like it. It, it keeps me in, in focused uh, position with the projects I'm doing. I, I got a book project uh, with Randy Hunley, the former Cubs catcher, uh, that we're just starting to work on. I'm like three chapters in on that. And that takes a certain focus. I'm finishing a book revision for uh, a client. Who, she's a very good writer. We're getting down to the end of that. And just last week, a guy that I went to college with and played football with in college, Dr. Keith Kelly. When I knew him, he was just number 82. But now he's Dr. Keith Kelly. And he wrote a book with, a, with his uh, co-author, uh, Dr. Patrick Ward, about education. And so that's wrapping up. We actually had the author's proofs go out to those guys uh, last week. So a lot of moving parts with that. And then I got all the audio stuff that I'm doing. Uh, just another uh, podcast that, that I was asked to produce an engineer uh, for Awake in the Network. It's a networking podcast from a, a longtime friend and uh, someone I've known in business uh, doing that. And so there's a lot of moving parts here. And then I got my own stuff. You know, I'm, I'm still cranking out things on my own, like this podcast and other uh books that I'm working on. It never seems to be enough time to do the things you want to do once you find them, Jim Croce said. I agree. So it takes time for this to warm up. And in the time it takes for this office space, this studio of mine to warm up, you know, I'm either online, checking up what's going on overnight. I'm uh, catching up on uh, emails, which is uh, nonstop. And, you know, I think about email and spam. You know, when I was a kid, spam was pork shoulder and gelatin, still is. Highly prized in Hawaii, by the way. Uh, but my morning goes pretty quick. But this morning, a little different. It was a little chillier to hear, a little damper than usual. And I turned the heat on right when I woke up, got the cat going, got the coffee going, got stuff worked out. Um, spent uh, last night cleaning out the backed up pipes in the kitchen. So last night, I'm plumber guy this morning, I'm radio guy. That's how it goes. I rarely sit down and watch television unless I can find a Western or something or a horror movie. But this morning, as I have at a few other times, I've been enamored with this Netflix series by David Letterman called, And My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. And it's people he is having these one-on-one -on -one conversations with small studio audiences on location. And I'm, I'm fascinated about the chameleon aspect of David Letterman. I never really watched him when he was on TV, he was the CBS late night talker. And then he had, you know, Jay Leno was on NBC. After Johnny Carson, to me, they're all a blur anyway. But um, I really like this show. I like their conversations they're having. And Letterman, for all his goofiness, which was he's paid millions of dollars to be goofy and be silly on late night, he is a very deep, introspective guy who looks like one of the Smith brothers now with that beard, the Smith brothers, you know, in the cough drop uh, box. So I'm listening to these great conversations. And before I get to the one I listened to this morning, Last week, I sat down and did something I never thought I would do. I never thought I'd sit down and listen to David Letterman have a conversation with Kim Kardashian. So I'm not in the wheelhouse of the whole Kardashian empire. I don't give a shit either way what's going on there. Uh, I'm fascinated that people are fascinated by them, but they're just very rich young women who are very beautiful and do all sort of strange and wonderful things to maintain that apparently. But I've never sat down and listened, nor would I think I need to, to listen to Kim Kardashian. And it's like 38 minutes. And they, it's obviously edited in such a way that it makes it very effective. I was impressed. I don't know that I owe her an apology, but I thought, eh, 
Interesting. So this is a, a young lady who, you know, for all the stuff that she does online, which I don't follow at all, if I just sat her down talking to David Letterman, I thought this is an interesting person to me. Uh, she was 22 when her father died, went through all the emaciations of that. Uh, she talked about the difficulty of losing her dad and how he became a lawyer, came, kind of came out of retirement, so to speak, to be on the OJ team with Johnny Cochran and that crew and how that affected her and how it kind of split her family a bit because her father at the time thought OJ was innocent and her mother, and that would of course be Kris Jenner. So her mom, Kris Jenner, uh, was a great friend of um, Nicole Brown who was slain in that attack. And so it really split them apart. And she said, I could see both sides. I saw my dad who believed in his friend and was a lawyer and tried to help him and believed everything O.J. Simpson said. And then her mom, Chris Jenner, who believed none of it. And it was a very difficult time. So I'm listening to these conversations going back and forth. And I was just pleasantly surprised compared to what I see in the blurbs or pick up things here and there and all that stuff that they do, you know, a reality show that's not really based in reality. But I, I digress on that as well. But for the 38 minutes I listened to David Letterman talk with her, I just, I thought this is someone I could sit and have a beer with. Might be okay. So that leads me to this morning with someone that I've always kind of enjoyed his comedy. But like a lot of comedians, he's trying to tell us something. And he says it in a way that gets our attention or not. Either you like the guy or you hate the guy. And that's Dave Chappelle. I happen to enjoy what he does. And there's even been times I groan and moan. I'm like, are you kidding me? He said that. But he's poking at society for a reason. And at one point in their conversation, he said something. He said a lot of things that struck with me this morning. But the one thing he said, he goes, no one in their right mind would go into a, um, a career that solely relies on other people's approval and appreciation. And boy, did that hit home. Now, when I got into radio, I never once ever, maybe still don't, thought I need anybody's approval. Like I already proved myself to do this. But what he was getting at and what struck home with me was, if you don't like me, you don't listen to this. I, when I started this podcast going on almost five years now, this May, I believe it is, um, I had hundreds of people lined up to do this. Hundreds of people were lined up to be listeners. And they were all becoming subscribers. And that's the whole model you try to figure out. How do you monetize something or do you just give it away? And it's been a little bit of both. But hundreds of people were locked in and... and over time, some have come, some have gone. Some have come, some have gone. It's like anything else. And yet I realized when he said that, that's what falls in line with what I do. If you approve of what I say here and you enjoy what is, is offered to you every week, then you're on board. If you're not, you're gone. And I can't tailor a message that would possibly ensure the fact that nobody ever says, oh, this guy's full of shit. I don't want to hear this anymore or whatever the deal is. I will say in the early days, a lot of people thought I was going to be like the next Tony Robbins. We already got one of those. Don't need another one. For better or for worse, doesn't really matter. My point is, I just do what I do. And when I came up with the concept of life 2.0, which means upping the game while we're here in the very short time that we're alive, we have to look at things in a way that is honest and authentic and then call out the bullshit when you see it across the board of human behavior and then learn from that if at all possible and that's where the obvious buried in the absurd thing comes to me. I mean, sometimes I sit and watch and go, this is just so obvious, it's absurd that it repeats itself over and over again. That's what humans 
tend to do. There's 7 billion of us on the planet and can't possibly get them all moving in the same direction. Just not possible. So he talked about that a little bit. He talked about his uh, deep desire because his dad was a, an educator, was a teacher of, of leaving the world better than you found it. He said, my dad went into class every day and taught kids who didn't have a whole lot, but he helped them believe in themselves and reminded them that they have work to do, not just in the classroom, but as a human being. And I thought, that's like, kind of falls like, this is exactly what I'm doing this for. Not my self-aggrandizement. You know, I've written books, I've done TED Talks, I've gotten travel and talk on stages in many parts of the world and all that kind of stuff. And that's all well and good. That's like success. But success is not the same as being significant. And in my fourth quarter here of my life, significance is more important to me than success. And significant means that I don't need to be recognized by anybody, but in myself, I'm doing something that's significant with the time that I have. And I think we should all be doing that, but that's just me. And that's what Life 2.0 is all about. Do something significant in a good way while you're here, because we're not here very long. So this went back and forth and they're, you know, having these conversation, Dave, and I'm waiting for the studio to warm up. I kept checking, is it warm? Is it warm? Because the more they're talking, the more stuff's bubbling around in my head about my part in the world. Because that's really what it comes down to. You know, in, in some respects, I need people or people are supposed to be following me. You know, if you're a Facebook person or you're on social media, the number of, quote, followers you have somehow connotates some form of success. You have X amount of followers. And I'm like, don't care about followers. I'm hoping leaders come out of this conversation, that, that someone who listens to this show, something clicks somewhere that didn't click before. And no matter who you are, what circumstances you're in, you're able to climb out of that a little bit and then help somebody else out of the hole. It's like my old buddy Jerry Kramer says, the best way to get out of the hole, Johnny, is put the goddamn shovel down. I don't know if he sounds exactly like that, but pretty close. You know, and, and I, that's a, just a little short left turn here. Uh, he calls me last Thursday to check in. Man, 87 years old now. I just turned 87 last week, and we had a wonderful conversation about things. And he says, you know, John, he says at some point, you, you know, his greatest achievement on the football field was the ability to close the gap. That when there's a blocking scheme, there are gaps. When you get into your stance, there are gaps. And the whole thing about football, from his perspective as a right guard, was to close the gap. So the, the, the opposing player, the opponent, can't make the tackle, can't stop the run, you know, fill in the blank. He said, but it doesn't end on a football field, John. It's, life is about closing the gaps so you're able to move forward. And when he said that to me, of course he talks that way. It, he's always talked that way. But once again, it, it reminded me, of when I put out my first book, Living an Uncommon Life, uh, Essential Lessons from 21 Extraordinary People. Jerry's in that book. And I had forgotten that we had that conversation 25 years ago. And that chapter is headed Closing the Gaps. It came right back. I totally forgot what I wrote in my own book. That's kind of how life is. And so when you take that concept of closing the gaps and what you're going to do with your life on this particular day, at this particular time, not knowing if you're going to be here tomorrow, I think that becomes something significant. However, for the most part, we are, you know, we go through our lives and there's a lot of mundane things to, to deal with. I got to take the garbage out an hour. I cleaned the sink out last night. But in this moment, I am reminded of doing something significant. So for me, using what I've been given, 
and responding to what I've been asked to do, because I feel that way with this, is why I'm sitting in this chair with a heating pad under my feet with the little heater on. It looks like a little fireplace. It's pretty cool. You know, keeping this place warm so I could walk in here and do this because this is my salvation. This is how I pay rent for the space I take up on the planet. So Letterman and Chappelle are going back and forth. And Letterman's talking about racism and racial relations in this country, which is unique mostly to our country. It's, it's obviously because of our history. And Chappelle says, do you realize that uh, just over a half century ago, somewhere in there, a little bit longer, that uh, John Lewis, late Congressman John Lewis, as a young man, was crossing the Pettus Bridge in Alabama. And as soon as he got the other side of this Freedom March, a white police officer came up hit him upside the head with a, like a baseball bat, took a baseball swing and cracked his skull. And fast forward to George Floyd, where you have a white police officer with his knee on Floyd's neck while they all stood around and watched what's changed in 50 plus years. Then fast forward to just this last week where a 140 pound black man is beaten to death by five black police officers. So, you have the white piece of it, and then you have the black piece of it, and then you have all the rest of it in between. And we, at some point, you sit back and go, what's going on here? Like, this is not new. This has been going on since it's been going on. There's a strain in our human DNA somewhere that there are people that act this way, that people believe a certain thing. And the only way, as Chappelle put it, to overcome that is to make his part of the world better. He can't control that. Can't control that. Can't control it. It will happen again, black and white, red and yellow. It's what humans do to each other, unfortunately and sadly. So Chappelle lives in this little town in Ohio. He says, everybody here knows me and I know them. And they really came out to see David Letterman, even though Chappelle's this big star. He says, I live a quiet life here. I come out, I do my events, I do whatever. And I live in community. And we all agree that we're not going to do that that way. We're not going to live our lives that way. That that stuff does not happen in our borders and boundaries. And I was fascinated by that. And it reminded me of something that was said to me years ago. And I mean no um, offense by using this word, but some of you might be offended anyway, but I'm just going to use the word. Somebody said to me once, you know why there's so many assholes in the world, Augie? And I said, no, go ahead, tell me why. He goes, because no one stopped them from being that way. When they were kids, teenagers, whatever. And it went right through me. Because no one stopped them. No one corrected their course. No one corrected their path. If they were a bully, nobody charged and challenged them that. And it doesn't happen instantaneously, even if you do, but no one took the effort to, to say no. To say no. Nay, nay. No. No more. And it's allowed to continue. And it spreads. And so I think about the times in my life that I know I was an asshole. There was a couple times when I was, another former life of mine, when I was a bouncer and working in a bar and, you know, I thought I was all that. And at the time I was for that little six foot piece of real estate that I patrolled. And there was a couple of guys I got into it with and they could have gone the wrong way. And I could have been doing this show from, you know, with wearing prison garb on uh, because I'd have been stupid. And the only way I'm able to call that out is because there were times I did that. I mean, I can recognize it. You know, about three years ago, I went to the, Neighborhood jewels over here to the deli. Going to get some zazij and some bologna, maybe a little liver sausage, eh? all Chicago food. 
And uh, there was four or five black gentlemen behind the counter, and I'm waiting in line for my turn. And this obviously drunk guy walks up, and he's the epitome of a redneck. You know, he's got four teeth missing. He's got a bandana on. He had to shave for weeks. Smells like a beer bottle. And he walks up with his southern accent. And it could be anybody, but it was this guy. And he starts railing on these young black men behind the counter and calling the N-word, the whole thing, get my food. I'm gonna... And I thought, you're an asshole. But not here and not now. That's not going to fly. And there was a woman with him, daughter, wife, girlfriend, I don't know. And he starts barking. And this guy couldn't have been more than 140 pounds soaking wet. You know, big mouth. Writing checks his body can't cash with his face. And my old self kind of came out. And I just put my hand across his chest. He said, we don't do that here. We don't do that here. We do not talk like that here. And he looked at me. And who the hell? Are you? I said, don't. Don't. Walk away. Otherwise, i got to call 911 because somebody got hurt. He goes, who got hurt? He said, it'll be you. I had to stop that stuff. He left. The woman looked at me like, nobody says that. I was waiting, frankly, for him to be out in the parking lot for me. And that didn't happen. But at some point, it's enough, even in that little small thing. Whether he was going to do anything more than that, I'll never know. I think I got the baloney for like half price. <laughs> but I mean, come on. And we see this stuff going on in the world. To say no is as important as to say yes sometimes. So I look at all this stuff that's going on. I, I'm getting ready to come in here this morning and thinking to myself again, as I always say, I don't want to come in here and just bloviate, speculate, and verbally defecate because I got a microphone. There's enough of that in the world. But is there something that we could resurrect in this, in this 30 minutes of conversation that by you listening, wherever you're at in the world, you're reminded of doing something significant today? And it doesn't have to be a huge thing. It can be a small thing, but something that's significant, that matters, that makes a difference, creates a good ripple effect. One thing. The magic of it is this. Once you do that, whoever that person may be involved that, that is the recipient of, of your benevolence, however that shows up, they're more apt to do that too. It's the ripple effect. And it goes from the next person to the next person, next person. Now, none of this stuff, if ever, shows up on the news. you got to go dig for it. I always talk about the, the good news network that's out there where you can find all these great human beings doing wonderful things on the planet because it's not on CNN, it's not on NBC, it's not on Fox. It's on none of that stuff. They don't sell that there. They don't peddle that there. There's no place for hope over there. you got to find it in your own life. Those headlines come and go, but the lifelines always remain. Coming up in about a month, I am so excited. I'm switching gears here, so follow me. Quick switch. Like my first car I learned to drive uh, four-speed on was an Opel Manta, 1974 Opel Manta. And I, I could take the car in a date if I could drive it. That was my dad's deal. You could drive it, you could take it. So I'll never forget my dad working on the front porch on something. And I said, can I take the car? I'm going out so-and-so. He goes, well, if you can drive it, you can take it. And I'd never driven a stick shift in my life. And I'll never forget how much I revved up the engine to get that thing out of first. And I popped the clutch and it died. <laughs> and he didn't say a word, much to my dad's credit. Never said a word. I did it twice, third time, finally got out. And the fact that my dad let me take this 1974 Opel Manta, this German car that he thought was the best thing ever built, out on the street with no prior uh, training from him, showed a lot on his part, about trust, I think. And he must have had a good insurance policy. But I, I got it around the corner, 
And I was able to figure out, well, first, second, third, fourth, I could do this. And then I had a hell of a, and it didn't even have power steering. It was a lot of fun. Anyway, I'm shifting gears in case you hadn't noticed. Coming up in just about a month on March 1st, I'm so excited. My friend, uh, country music superstar, Grammy award-winning uh, singer-songwriter John Barry is coming back to Chicago. He was uh, here last year, late last year, in uh, September, I think, and maybe a little bit later, maybe in October. He was cold. John's a, from Nashville, so you know, below 60, it's freezing out. Uh, but he's coming back because he was at this small club in Arlington Heights, Illinois, which is you know, about 18, 20 miles uh, northwest of Chicago, somewhere there. It may not even be that far. And it was a one-off concert that had been canceled during the pandemic, which I'll get to in a second. Not the concert, the pandemic. And it got rescheduled and he came out there. And as it turned out, it was the 25th anniversary of John Denver's passing last year. And uh, many of you know, John was a buddy and I've done tributes to the guy and all that kind of stuff and continues to be a source of, uh, of uh, significance to me. And JB came up with Robin and the Big Mike, the bass player, and they did a great show. And I got up there and talked about John a little bit. And JB did some of John's songs. It was great. And I sang along. I can't believe they asked him back after I was singing. But he's coming back. I'm not doing the whole stage singing thing this year, but he is coming back. And, and I've you know, realized as I move forward in the podcasting thing and my radio work that I did for a year called The Dow of Music in Washington has gone by the wayside. I can't use music in podcasts because you get sued because there's no rights to be uh, to be handled really unless you pay a crap load of money, which I'm not going to do because it's not a music show per se. However, there's about six or seven artists that I know personally that aren't going to sue me if I use their music, and John Barry's one of them. So, uh, at the end of the show, I'm going to drop the needle on that just as a preview of uh, of JB coming to the Chicago area. So if you're in this area and you enjoy great music. He's going to do a solo show, just John and a couple of his guitars, and it's going to be great March 1st. I'll let you know about that as we go uh, along and get a little closer to it at Hey Nani in Arlington Heights. For the rest of the world, you got to watch him online. That's all I know. Three years ago, this past week is when the pandemic was officially declared in the United States. And it start, went from the east and swept to the west and connected all the way around the world, and millions of people died, of course, as we know, and and sick and the whole we all were there and if you weren't there then you were on a different planet because it was a once hopefully lifetime event nothing i want to repeat but really to me after sitting it in hindsight was really the biggest global experiment in human behavior modification that i'd ever seen and in some respects it failed miserably just to get someone to put a mask on, you thought you were asking for their kidney. And I've given up a kidney, so I often know what I'm talking about. You thought it was like the end of the world. Oh, you want me to put a mask on? That's unconstitutional. Really? Where does it say that? Anyway, so many lessons that were extracted during that time. And now here we are. There's hardly any mention of it on the news. Uh, every now and again, the COVID numbers pop up here and there, but they're really nothing of consequence unless you're in China. And last, this past Thursday morning, I got up really early, which is normal, as I've mentioned, and I connected with a friend of mine in China uh, online, and we chatted in real time and talked, and China's where we were three years ago for various reasons, governmental reasons and, uh, you know, restriction reasons and uh, vaccine reasons and all, all the, and more. And she was... Uh, 
sharing with me how difficult it is. She says, we watched the United States go through all this. Are we going to go through this? And, you know, that remains to be seen. They're kind of in the middle of it now. And I look back on it now and I think, God, how different would it have been if we could have done some of the things that Chappelle talked about, that we're all in a world community. And this is affecting everybody, no matter what color of the skin you have, whether you're male or female, how you vote, where you live, how much money you have. None of that matters. Everybody's going to get touched some way, shape, or form. And even then, we broke down into divisions, good and bad, right and left, up and down. It's sad in some deal, that's for sure. But I'm heartened by the fact that also taking some of Chappelle's insight and advice is that all I can control is whether I put a mask on back then, which I did, or if I got vaccine, which I did. And I, you know, I have a daughter who is uh, immune compromised. Uh, she's had two kidney transplants. She was born with a kidney defect. She had a right kidney rot when she was five. I gave her a kidney when she was 13. It lasted till 2018, right before the pandemic. She did dialysis for two years. And then she just passed her two-year mark with another kidney that was given by an angel donor, as we call them. And the woman is an angel. And it's a perfect match. So for me, my reference point is, why the F wouldn't you put a mask on? You don't know who you're running into. And if you were immunosuppressant, you'd be wearing a mask too. That's why doctors wear them. But that's an old conversation. We'll see if that ever has to surface again. What I'm heartened by is that in this time, this morning, this show, Life 2.0, to up the, up the ante a little bit, up our awareness a little bit, come up with something of significance, not irrelevance. Those type of things have moment for me. And I will know when I shut this mic off in about a minute and a half, that I did what I was supposed to do, that I came here and did my job, that I showed up and closed the gaps, that I pushed some measure of success off to the side because that's just something that's fleeting, but significance is permanent if you choose it. And the ripple effect takes care of the rest, for better or for worse. I appreciate so much the people who have stuck with this show all these years, the subscribers especially who plunk down 20 bucks a month, five bucks a week, 66 cents a day to hear this. Thank you so much. You know, that's the cost of a Rocky's pizza. Well, that's before inflation. It's the cost of a Rocky's pizza, my favorite joint right up the street here. And I just deeply appreciate it. And by the way, just so you know, that, that money goes right back out to other things. St. Jude's, for example, $19 a month. So one of you putting down the 20 bucks, that goes right through the goose and down to St. Jude's to help uh, kids that need it. So, until next time, be well, safe travels, keep the faith. We'll let John Barry take it from here. Adios. Every tear, every doubt, every time you're down and out, when you hurt feeling shame all your numb and all your pain when you think you've lost your way or you're too far gone to pray he's still waiting there to say you're beautifully broken
it with 